may be seated. And uh, it's great to see everybody today. Show your appreciation to our worship team, our setup team, our children's ministry, all the people who are serving us this morning, preparing us for worship. My name's Colby. I'm going to ask you to turn to Romans chapter 11. In a moment, we're going to read a, a large portion of Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 17, as we continue in our series. As I said, my name's Colby. If this is your first time here, I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar Church, and we are in a series in the book of Romans. Uh, this is actually our last Sunday in Romans before the fall. Uh, we do have a summer series in the parables planned that starts next week. Next week we'll be looking at parables throughout the summer, and we will jump back into the book of Romans in September. So uh, we're excited to be able to dig into this uh, section at the end of Romans 11 today. Let's begin in verse 7, reading together. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 
And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we confess even now as we study these words, Lord, how much we need your spirit to give insight into this text. Lord, we don't just desire to understand what's being pointed to, but to be able to celebrate with Paul the wonder of your saving work. And Lord, in some way to feel small before the majesty of your power. Lord, we don't want to be enlarged ourselves, but to know that there is a God and Father whose love and strength and power and wisdom and majesty so far outflanks ours that we can rest in it and trust in it, that we gain security from your sovereign kindness and mercy. So God, we ask and beg of your help in Jesus' name, amen. So easy passage, right? And now we just maybe talk a little bit about application. I'm just kidding. It's a, this, is, this is the most complicated passage in the book of Romans so far. And so if you're just popping in, it's not always as complex as it is on this Sunday. But like we do with God's word, we take it in hand as we work our way through it. And we learn what God has for us from difficult passages and from plain and clear ones. And I think if you pay attention today, you're going to see uh, that there's a lot for us to be gained here. But as I was thinking about this passage, I was thinking about um, my life as a dad and how often I like my kids uh, to think I'm playing 3D chess. Now, maybe you're not familiar with that idea, but, you know, it's just kind of this, you know, sometimes, you know, chess is really two-dimensional, right? It's played on a flat board and it's a strategy game, but, but you know, to, to indicate sometimes that someone is, has intelligence that far goes beyond everyone else's, you know, we talk about them playing 3D chess. It's like they see all of the strategy and everything that's going on in a whole other dimension, and this is the role of a dad, right? Like, you know, we're, we're always instructing our kids and, and, and we're trying to help them understand life and, and we just want them to trust us. So every now and then I try to play with my kids a little bit and, and just say, listen, I am thinking about these things in the, on the 10 to 20 year scale. I'm playing 3D chess right now and you're just thinking about the next moment. And I want to show them how intelligent I am and how much I, I'm controlling the various things going on in their life and they can trust me. 
You know, it's a bit like, you know, Dr. Strange level of control, right? Where, you know, you can take all of these things no one can see and you can twist them and make them happen in ways that would be incredibly unexpected with control over the details of life. Let's be honest, we don't have that, do we, dads? You know, the truth is we just have to work it out day by day, trust in the Lord, but sometimes we wish our children would trust us like we're playing 3D chess. Truth is, we just work day by day. And, and, you know, honestly, as I look out and I think of the dads in this church, I'm thankful for the example of so many dads here at, at Pillar and the way I see just day-to-day faithfulness. The role you play as fathers in the life of your kids is irreplaceable. Maybe you haven't been reminded of that because in a sense, we, we've so disintegrated our sense of God's order and family that we don't believe that God purposes for, for reasons that are for our good to put fathers in our life. But even in a broken world, God shows kindness in so many situations through the work that dads play in their kids' lives. I just want you to know, dads, wherever you're at in your walk with the Lord, wherever you're at in your journey as a father, I want you to know how much what you do matters. You may even believe that you've forsaken uh, your influence in your kids' lives, but, but everything within me just knows that every child wants to hear the words of a proud father. I was watching, most of you guys know I love sports. Jason Tatum plays for the Boston Celtics. They lost the NBA Finals this past week. Womp, 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 right? For all of our Bostonians and New Englanders out there, I'm so sorry. But you know, it's really easy, you know, in the world we live in, all the prognosticators and people who comment on everything are like tossing aside, what's wrong with Jason Tatum? He failed, he only scored 13 points. In the, in the final game and, you know, just tossing this aside. And there was this, uh, there was this message that I saw this week uh, from his dad to him. Talking about how much of a winner he is, how proud he was of the man that he's become, and just filling him up with encouragement. And, and I thought, this is the role. This is what it looks like for dads to do what they do well. They see in moments when everybody else is walking out and everybody else uh, is looking at just a narrow view of our lives, they see the bigger picture. And you have the opportunity to play some 3D chess in the life of your kids when they're stuck in a moment, to be able to know that there's something great that you can remind them of, call them to, and encourage. And I just see all across our church, and I've been so encouraged and challenged by the way that so many dads in this congregation encourage their kids, are steadfast through the ups and downs, and I just want to remind you how much you matter. I think of my own father today. Um, The older I get, the more I see and privilege I've had to have a dad who loves Jesus, who has walked faithfully with him over these uh, 42 years of my life, and has always, always reminded me of his joy in being my father. And that's just, a, a, I realize that many of you don't have that story, and I ache for the fact that you don't, and I know that there's... There's a fatherhood of God that can do things that cover that with grace, but I just give glory to God for privileging me with a dad like that, and I'm thankful for him. Well, in this passage, 
we actually do see that God really is playing 3D chess in the world. What we see in this passage is that when we think about salvation and our relationship to God and how all of that works, that we often have this individualistic, narrow view of what it means to be saved and what God's saving work looks like and and what he should or shouldn't be doing or is or isn't doing in any given time. And Paul, he takes the Old Testament and observing what God is doing in his time and he begins to show for the church at Rome what God is doing in, in his it's grand strategy, and it's mind-blowing, but it's hard to follow. <laughs> it's mind-blowing, but, but Paul does some amazing things to help us see the heart of this passage. The result is, in these verses, if we pay attention, we see two things about God's glorious saving work that draw us to worship. When we zoom out, we see a story of mercy in God's salvation, and we see a stunning wisdom A story of mercy and a stunning wisdom. And we're going to look at those two pieces today in this passage. So to do that, I just want you to follow along. If you you didn't have a Bible out while we were reading, I would encourage you to grab a Bible app to open up to follow in these verses because I'm going to run us through a summary of that large passage that we just read. The first thing that we see in verses 7 to 32 is we see the saving work of God is a sovereign story of mercy. That if we understand it well, if we understand the good news of Jesus and all that God is accomplishing in the world, it is a story of God's sovereign mercy. Now, I wanna, I'm going to hit some highlights, and they're going to be on the screen. Uh, I've got like a six-point summary of this section that will help us see the saving work of God is really a sovereign work of mercy. But I want you to follow along. The first thing we see in verses 7 through 10, Paul acknowledges A sovereign hardening of Israel to the gospel that he says is an act of judgment. Paul is bringing us into the grand story of history of what God has been doing. And in verses 7 through 10, he says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. It was seeking this blessing from God. It was seeking God's blessing in their midst. The work of his salvation poured out over them. But it was seeking it in the wrong way. They sought it in their own strength, on their own terms. And he says, he says, he describes some passages. He quotes the Old Testament and says, because they had rejected God, because Israel constantly ran after idolatry and has, had rejected God, that God in time had given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see. And what Paul is looking at is he's looking at his present moment. He's looking at his present moment when in the midst of the gospel spreading throughout the Roman world that that the majority of Jewish people have rejected the good news of their own Messiah. And he looks at that and he says, actually what God's doing is exactly what he promised when for years he encouraged them to turn back. He's bringing a judgment upon them where now in this critical moment where God's grace is most available to them, they can't even see the goodness of it. And so he says, he acknowledges this sovereign hardening. They're now experiencing a hardening of their own hearts to the gospel such that Paul and his other Jewish companions are compelled by the Spirit of God to take the gospel to the nations, thus fulfilling Jesus' instruction in the Great Commission. Now it's worth noting that this hardness, and what does this mean that they have a hardness of heart, right? 
It's worth noticing that this hardness is a general description of the Jewish response Paul was seeing because he keeps reminding us that despite what God may be doing generally among the Israelite people and the Gentiles, he has also elected, see verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. We saw last week in verses 1 through 6 of this same chapter that even though they had rejected and wholeheartedly turned their back on him, God had persisted in in his own personal pursuit, had, had saved a remnant of them by grace, not because they deserved it. This is who he's talking about, the elect, those whom God has showered mercy upon undeservedly because of the hardness of their heart. And so we see he's speaking in general terms about this Jewish rejection while also acknowledging God's sovereign kindness to save a remnant that would point to a fuller flourishing of salvation in a future time. So Paul acknowledges this hardening to the gospel as an act of God's judgment in verse 7 through 10. But then in verses 11 and 12, Paul explains that Israel's hardness is not permanent, it's temporary. So he's asking these questions in verse 11, 12. Paul continues with this clarifying question about what this judgment of hardening at the present time means. And the question is, did they stumble that they might fall? Now, now here when he asks, did they stumble? He's pulling from past chapters, chapter 9 towards the end, where they said that they stumbled over the stumbling block of Jesus. That the Messiah Jesus would bring by faith those into God's genuine, sincere family. But they wanted it by the law. And because it meant they had to trust the, the Messiah Jesus, they stumbled over that. To receive it by grace. And his question is this. Was that stumbling so that they might ultimately just be cast aside by God? That's what he means when he says that they might fall. Is it an ultimate stumbling? Is this the end of God's concern for the people of Israel? Now let let me step aside for a second and just clarify something. When we talk about Israel in this context, do you ever wonder like who are we talking about? I'll just ask that for you. If you weren't asking, you should be. All right? You should be thinking, Israel, are we talking about geopolitical Israel that exists right now in modern day Israel? Not particularly. Now, that's not to say that there aren't Israelites that are a part of that geopolitical state, but that the correspondence isn't the same as what he's talking about here. Here, we're talking about this general descendants from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who have been born of this line and received these promises from God that that they would be the vehicle through which God would bring his redeeming plan. And ultimately, their redemption would lead to the world's redemption and people would be brought in from every nation through the Messiah, Savior, who would be delivered through their seed. And so we're thinking of that whole corporate existence of the people of Israel as he's talking about that and the question is is God done with that group of people that make up that people group and so his answer is no this is a temporary judgment that they've experienced so this stumbling in part is temporary he anticipates a time when Israel will experience a full inclusion in the blessings of the gospel of Jesus, which is best understood as a large-scale future receptivity and recognition of God's saving work in their Messiah, Jesus Christ. So Paul explains that Israel's hardness is temporary. 
So he says, now if their trespass means riches for the world, meaning the Gentiles are hearing the gospel, and if their failure means riches for the Gentile, how much will their full inclusion mean? By full inclusion, he, he imagines what the Old Testament promises when, God, when it promises that even though the Israel as a people would be judged for their hardness of heart, that God would gather them from the winds of the earth. And he would renew them and give them a heart that they would seek him and they would know him and they would be transformed when he sends their deliverer and redeemer, the Messiah. And so Paul is imagining this fulfillment of what we read about in the Old Testament. He says, this is a temporary thing, not a permanent thing. Then we see a third thing that's summarized in verse 13 through 15. Paul sees that the Gentile explosion of faith is in part to make Israel jealous. What does that mean? Well, in verse 13 through 15, he lines this out. Paul then continues to explain his present understanding of his own mission. The mission God has given him to the Gentiles as a part of a larger plan of God to fulfill his promises to the Jewish people whose hearts have been hardened with disobedience. Look at 13. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul knows that he is a Jewish guy who's been saved through this promised Messiah delivered through the Jewish people, but now his primary ministry has been to go to the Gentiles because the Jewish people have rejected Jesus. This is just the practicality of what Paul was experiencing in his time. And Paul says, this is an amazing blessing that has come to the Gentiles that that through this, but that that as he's proclaiming the gospel, Paul is literally seeing revival sort of responses to Christ. Let's not forget, like in the early chapters of Acts, in the years that followed Jesus' resurrection, you would have 2,000, 3,000 people in Jerusalem turned to faith in Christ in one day in a church form that is larger than almost any church in our community, immediately in a moment of preaching. That you would see that as they went from place to place, that after they'd been run out of the synagogues, often massive amounts of Gentiles would believe this message of good news that they could have a relationship with God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were being gathered into the church and following Christ, forsaking their sin and and experiencing life with God. The blessing of communing with Him, of being a people, of knowing what it means to live for the purpose for which they were created. And Paul sees this And he says, but that is not the end goal of it all. You know, because he's asking the question, is this just the end of what God was always after, to set aside the Jewish people so that the nations might be saved? And he says, actually, in the midst of that, that's a really awesome, glorious thing that God planned to do. But, but, But next in the story beyond that is that through this Gentile response to the gospel, that Israel would be provoked That in a sense they would say, we're missing out on what God is doing and what God has promised. And before we miss out on it permanently, let's turn to him and trust him. And so he sees that the Gentile explosion of faith in verses 13 to 15 is in part to make Israel jealous. And so then the next thing we see is that Paul insists, verses 16 through 24... He's going to get down to the practicalities of why is he writing this at all to the Roman church and going into all this deep theology and why are we hearing this? Well, Paul insists that the Gentiles should be humble because they've been included in God's promises to Israel. 
So in verses 16 through 24, we get this extended metaphor that really is a warning and an application to the Gentile believers. Now let me back up and remind us of the setting like I've done every week since we've been in 9 through 11. The setting is that in Rome, you have this growing, large set of churches. And the makeup of those churches is that they are primarily Gentiles with a small remnants of Jewish people. And those Jewish people are saying, this seems off. Why is it that the Jewish people are rejecting this message if he's a Messiah brought through the promises made to the Jews? And, and doesn't it seem like there's something wrong? And this is Paul's whole explanation of it. And the problem is that the Gentile Christians are finding it easy to sort of categorize and dismiss the Jewish Christians. They sort of, they sort of have become shunned within the church they're not valued we're going to see this work out in in chapters 12 through 16 some of the ways their concerns and their cultural context is being ignored when paul wants to unify them and so what's happening is he's saying you gentile believers think you are the new game in town because all of a sudden the gospel is flourishing among them you think god has cast them off but god has not cast them off he's using you in a way to prepare to provoke them that they might hear this good news. And so, and then he says to the Gentiles, you need to humble yourselves. Because really, your whole salvation comes from being included in the, God, in the promises God made to them. This isn't just some new story, you having a relationship with God. God has been doing a whole thing for ages. And, and for all intents and purposes... You belong outside of the story of those promises. But in God's kindness, he has expanded the tree <laughs> to bring you in. And you need to understand the story and the root and the hope of the full things that God is doing. And be humble. This is what he's saying to them. We see this worked out in 16 through 24. We get this extended metaphor that really is a warning. And so you may have just thought all of a sudden you were all that matters to God. This is, this is what he's saying to these Gentiles in this whole grand story of his saving work. Maybe that's you too. Like it's so, your, your faith is so disconnected from the grand story of the Bible that you don't see this context. But you shouldn't see it that way. The gospel that God is working out, the salvation you have, you're a part of, is rooted in the promises made to Israel. And you are like a wild branch grafted into an olive tree. You get your benefits as an act of God's sheer mercy to include you. So be humble and receive it that way. Look at verses 17 and 18, particularly where he says, If you've been grafted into this nourishing root by faith, do not be arrogant toward the branches. The branches are the rest of the collections of those Israelite people who God has chosen to set his love and attention on. He says, don't be arrogant toward them. Be humble. Remember, it's not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. You've been grafted into their bigger story as an act of God's kindness. Verse 20, do not become proud, but stand in awe that God has included you among his people. The warning comes in this passage by way of this image of being cut off from the tree, right? 
And, and I find that a lot of people have challenges in, in understanding what's being pictured here. And, and the way it really pans out is we automatically start thinking about our individual salvation, right? We start thinking, okay, does that mean that I, I'm the singular branch and I might, I've been put into this tree and now if I, you know, if I don't watch out and I'm prideful, I'm going to get cut off from the tree and I can be saved and not saved and lose my salvation, be in and out, and God didn't do that. Well, that's not what he's talking about. Let's, let's stay in the story that Paul's telling, right? He's talking about Gentile inclusion as a group, right? And in sort of the revival that's going on, God's focus and his work and energy and seeing the gospel go to them and, and the story of is, the Israelite people being the branches of this tree that God's been growing to glorify himself. And he says that some of those branches have been cut off. What does that mean? He's speaking in a corporate sense here in a lot of ways. Let me try to help you understand that. Some portion of Israel has been cut off as a result of their disobedience to God. That's what he's been saying all along. It's best to understand this as a warning about these general categories of Jews and Gentiles as the focus of God's saving work at any given moment. They are not included, included in the benefits of Jesus Fulfillment. He's not talking about an individual Christian who has saving faith, losing their salvation, but a Gentile-dominated church enjoying the blessings of God for a season now, being cut off from those blessings in the future because they'd become prideful. He's saying to this, this mostly Gentile church in Rome, you want to continue in the blessings of God using you? Then be humble and understand how you got in here to begin with. And he's, you know, throughout, you know, from all of this, we see that God, listen, this is so important for us to understand. We see that God brings his reviving work and his work of judgment against sin in times and seasons. If you read the Old Testament enough, you begin to see how God works in these seasons of outpouring. And he works in these seasons of judgment. And He's right to do that. It's a part of his grand wisdom. Throughout Israel's history, there were times and generations that experienced an outpouring of God's blessing in some manner as God worked among them, as David reigned as king and things flourished, as Solomon built the temple. But then there were seasons where their idolatry caused them to be destroyed and torn apart in so many ways, and rightfully so, because they had rejected God. During all those periods, though, there were remnants of faithful Israelites who were faithful to God and shown mercy. Despite what was going on in seasons, God would still save individuals in the midst of it. And this is good news, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you feel like you're in a place where God's work is powerful and moving, or one where we see a sense of God's judgment around us in the disintegrating of things that are at the heart of God. That you as an individual can trust in the hope of Jesus Christ and endure whatever season that is. That we're to remain faithful and let God be sovereign over the seasons of his work in the grand scheme of salvation. So even now as the Gentiles are experiencing this moment of incredible mercy from God as Paul sees it and experiencing salvation and hope through Jesus Christ, this Roman church of mainly Gentiles that is like a wild shoot grafted in by God's unmerited kindness could be cast aside if they're not humble. And particularly that meant for these Gentile Christians that they should not disregard the concerns and experience of the Jewish Christians 
among them because they are a part of God's broader work and God's not finished with his promises to them as a whole. Some portion of his future glory will be seen as Jesus the Messiah is glorified among the whole of the Jewish people. This is what Paul's arguing. We see this in verses 25 through 29 as Paul anticipates the joy of God's completed plan. So he finishes up this description of the tree and the branches, and he really wants to bring it home in verses 25 through 29. So in verses 25 through 29, Paul summarizes his point, and he brings it to completion before he celebrates what it means. Here's how we are to see this Gentile revival, this inclusion of them in God's salvation. He says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. Three statements there that point to a unique plan of God that Paul sees being played out in this moment that are all important for us to see. He's perp- God is purposing and working out a grand plan, and they're all tied together. The time of judgment that Paul's acknowledged on Israel for their hardness of heart has resulted, he says, in the spread of the gospel among the Gentiles. This explosion that Paul is seeing. He says then, the Gentile salvation will prompt many Jewish people in turn to be brought into the kingdom as they're provoked and see that they're missing out. One feeds the other. They're all interrelated in God's purposes and plan and never an end in themselves. So to both verify the idea and nail the point home, Paul quotes Isaiah 59. In a way, the way that Paul writes verses 25 through 29 is to say, how is this large-scale revival among Jewish people seeing and celebrating their Messiah going to happen in the future? Back up. Well, the answer is, as God spreads the gospel powerfully among the nations. As he spreads the gospel powerfully among the Gentiles, that through this, at some point, it will highlight the glory of Jesus and they'll be compelled. So, for the time being, this is, if he quotes Isaiah 59, a section of prophecy, if you read all of Isaiah 59, it describes Israel's rejection of God and his judgment on them in a temporary way. But it promises that there would be a time where God, through his chosen servant, the Messiah, would renew the hearts of Israel through their deliverer. And so it says, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. It's talking about the ultimate ministry of Jesus Christ in their midst. So for the time being, the general population of Jewish people that this mostly Gentile church finds itself connected with may oppose them in regards to the gospel, be like even enemies to them. But God is not finished with Israel because he has a bigger calling for them that is irrevocable. And they will be renewed towards God in a special way, just as the Old Testament promises and Paul is highlighting here. So, and at the center of all this is not Jews or Gentiles, but the deliverer, Jesus Christ. This is the good news. He is the hope. He's the hope for Gentile salvation, and he's the hope for Jewish salvation. There's only one door into the sheepfold, and it's Jesus Christ. 
and his shed blood. Anybody tired yet? Okay, if you are, this is supposed to exhaust you out. Stay with me. To end the section, Paul sums it up as mercy. What's his summary point? As mercy for all, both Jews and Gentiles. Verses 30 through 32. In the end, Paul really wants us to come to the conclusion that he makes in verses 30 through 32. When we think of our own salvation through this sovereign work of God, we have been shown abundant mercy. God is working out a plan that shows that salvation is about God's mercy displayed on those who have been sinful. Verse 30, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience in part, he says. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. And his way of saying that is that, like God has been working out a plan to show the effects of sin are so bad that no one can save themselves. Everyone is guilty as charged before God and surrounded by the consequences of their own sin such that the only way anyone is saved or has hope is because God is merciful on them. How do we know that? Well, we see it. He just says it straight on in verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. There's a word here in verse 32 that's worth some attention briefly. It's the word consigned. What does that mean? Well, the Greek word is soon kleo, translated here consigned. Consigned isn't a word I use a lot. Maybe it's something you guys use, but I needed to think a little bit about it to really try to, like, what does it mean that guys consigned them to obedience? Well, it means that they're completely given over and surrounded. That the effects of their disobedience is such that they're closed in on every side from any sense of hope. That there's no way that they can find their way out of the mess that they've made themselves. That that the result of sin is that we imprison ourselves from the goodness and blessing of God. Is it starting to sound familiar? You know, if we really take sin seriously, what happens, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, is that sin builds a wall around us that closes out the blessing of God so that there's no way we could escape our own prison. This is what he means by consigned. You see, whether it was the Jewish people who he had chosen to be sort of the stewards of this grand story and had so rejected him and their sin that now they find themselves hardened and closed in. Or the Gentiles who in their own unrighteousness and pursuit of their own desires and own purposes and definitions of who they wanted to be had so cut themselves off from the good things that God had created them to fulfill. Filled with wickedness and sin. Jew, Gentile, both in the same camp. Totally separated from God because of our sin. And it's not the end of the story, he says. He says, if we want to understand salvation, we realize that God made it clear that that is what sin does so powerfully so that he could show mercy 
and save a people who would understand how undeserving they are, but how kind God is as a rescuer and deliverer. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy. It means completely given over, even more specifically, hemmed in, surrounded, closed. So how do we experience salvation? Well, Paul's answer is simple. It comes to us from God. When our disobedience has closed us in on every side, we do not find salvation within ourselves or in our community or in our group or climb our way out of the walls. God comes to us through Jesus and offers mercy. You see, all of this is to fulfill what Romans 10, 13 says, that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and his salvation is a mercy from him entering into our mess and rescuing us from the consequences we rightly deserve. It is a sovereign story of mercy, which leads to my second and much shorter point. The saving wisdom of God is a stunning mystery. You see, God has done all of this to make the playing field totally level and show that he's merciful. Now hear me for a second. After that overview, and I don't know about you, the last few weeks of studying Romans 9 through 11, we've gotten a glimpse into the big picture of God's ages-long plan to glorify his mercy and save a people for himself. And in a sense, you probably got questions, right? You're like, hang on a second, slow down. I got a question about all this stuff you're talking about, Israel and this future blessing and how it all fits together. You've got questions and I don't have answers. Because there are no more answers in this passage. Because Paul has said all of these things, and when he gets there, and he's trying to break it down and help him understand, he stops and realizes just that this work of God is so wise and sovereign and beyond our understanding that he says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. began in eternity past when he endeavored to create the world to put his love on display. Even before then, he knew that sin would abound and he planned to pour out mercy on many who would be hemmed in by their own disobedience. How he would do that and upon whom is a matter of sovereign election is what Paul has said. Not based on anything in any person, but an act of undeserved favor and mercy out of God's free decision. In the course of time, as the world was surrounded by the darkness of its own disobedience, God called out Abraham, promised to make of him a great nation, and through one of his offspring to bring God's saving blessing to the world as an act of mercy. In the course of time, he fulfilled that promise. And Abraham's descendants became a people saved out of the oppression of Egypt by God's mighty hand through Moses and settled in a land that he had promised that they didn't build. 
despite their disobedience and hardness to him, God preserved them as a people and through them delivered to the world his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, who though he himself knew no sin, bore our sins from the inside and their penalty on the cross. Even as he walked among his own people, it says he was rejected and despised on the whole. He taught and reasoned and loved and healed, yet was described by John in chapter 1 of the gospel as one who came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to as many as did receive him, he granted them the right to be called children of God. The rejection by his own people displayed in the cross itself and then furthered by the persecution of his followers sent the gospel out of Israel to the far reaches of the world where mercifully many have heard of his saving work and have been drawn into a reconciled relationship with God by faith and saved from the wrath of coming judgment against sin. And as we speed this mission, as in our time, we speed this mission to the ends of the earth among all nations, seeing people saved. As we speed this mission to all peoples around the globe, we are joining with God to prepare the Jewish people to see the glory of God in this magnificent plan so that many of them will believe Jesus is the Savior of the world and their promised Messiah in preparation for his return to renew all things at the end of time. And in that day, we will not celebrate our heritage. We all with one voice will glorify God for his mercy and see that his love for us has been astounding. This sense of largeness is at the heart of Paul's recounting for us and the inspiration for these final verses of this chapter where he says, oh, the depth of the riches and wits. And knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. You see, if you're like me, you hear all of this and, and you have a million questions. And Paul's done answering them. The point is not to get all of our questions answered. About how all these things fit together. And if you've been obsessed with that, be sure to step back and see the grand beauty. Don't believe for a second you can simplify and understand the ins and outs of God's plan. Even more so, judge the Lord who is judge over all the earth or be his counselor. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? We are in no position to comprehend the largeness of God's saving wisdom in all of history or assess him like we are his counselors. He is not in our debt to repay a gift. Paul closes with this stunning description. For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Here Paul goes beyond intellectual grasp to wonder. Wonder, amazement. And when we've, right, when we've rightly understood God's saving work, and the rich privilege of receiving his mercy, the only thing we can do from our small little vantage point at this moment in history is to respond in wonder that God, through his kindness, has given us the opportunity to know his saving plan in Christ. To marvel 
at the privilege of being counted as his children and to trust in faith as he works out all of his future glory. This is no small thing. We don't understand the mind of the Lord, but we can entrust ourselves to a God. You know, the powerful thing about this is we can entrust ourselves to a father with that kind of wisdom and might and strength who's playing real 3D chess as we walk through the challenges of our life and aren't sure how they fit all together. We can know that that steadiness of that story from ages past who Paul says is going to be completed means the steadiness of our hope and assurance. That God has not just done a big thing, but he's fitted you into it in a specific way if you will just trust in Jesus Christ by faith. And so today, we look and go, you know what? My kids, when they were small, they didn't know where their food came from. They didn't know how they were getting places. They didn't know what was on the schedule for the next day or the things that were upcoming a week from now. But we could still gather around the table and have food. The schedule got planned out. The days rolled on. Things have been prepared for. And, and today, as we gather around the table, that's what we're reminded of. You see, we take communion every week. We're gathering around the table of our Heavenly Father who knows that we can't comprehend today from tomorrow and what's going to happen a hundred years from now. But yet there's food at the table through Jesus Christ. Our greatest needs have been met. Our most important future things have been prepared for. And the Father calls us to come and rest in his promises. And today, if you've trusted in this promise of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, we invite you to take this bread in the cup as we take the Lord's Supper as, as a way of expressing your faith in the sovereign goodness and promises of God to work out his saving plan, not just over your life, but for the sake of the world. And so, if that's you, we invite you to take the bread in the cup as we sing and prepare for the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with wonder and give us a sense of how merciful you've been. Lord, thank you that we can come rest around the Father's table and know that the meal has been prepared, that we rest secure as we entrust ourselves to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Listen, as we sing, there's an opportunity.